The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's lovely to meet you. And I really, really appreciate your life's work. I mean, I think what you've done has been really remarkable, particularly because of the time period in which you embarked in it. I mean, you sort of got involved in psychedelics and psychedelic research at the very beginning of it and when it was extremely controversial and very difficult to do research. Well, I actually got involved in it when it was incredible fun. And um, I was incredibly lucky with my timing, I think, Mm. because I was very attracted to um, the other side, if you like, the mystical. Because I lived in this very, very isolated spot and one had nothing to do but kind of mooch around a beautiful place, have mystical experiences, dream of the future. Is that your phone? There yes. we go. <laughs> when did you first get involved or even interested in uh, what you would call mystical experiences? I'll let you show ah, you. Sorry, sorry, no sorry. No worries. I don't know how to turn these things off. Do you want me to turn it on mute yes, for you? please. Okay, here you go. These wacky kids today and their devices. Ah, all right, yes, there you go. sorry about that. No worries. No worries at all. Um, so uh, yes. how old were you when you first got interested in... Um, very young, I should say. Um, I came... Uh, I had a kind of... in the. I, I grew up in this very isolated place. Um... I was very, very close to my father, who came back from the war, a diabetic, and he was a very eccentric person. And so from three, I was his carer. So three I was like, years old? Yeah, which was a lovely role. I mean, I was his little pet dog. I went everywhere with him. I adored him, and he adored me. And, so, and he was a very um, out of the... He wasn't in normal society at all. How so? He just wasn't. He was uh, eccentric and uh, charming. Um, did his own thing. Mm. Artist. Pe- um, a farmer, but not really a farmer. He couldn't bear really farming. But um, Yeah, anyway. So, um, and I suppose spiritually I had three. My mother was a Catholic, so I grew up a Catholic. And then he was whatever, agnostic, atheist, nothing except a thinker, and um, then his best friend, who was his kind of, he picked up as um, he, the person who did all his work when he was at university, called Bertie, um, was, became a Buddhist monk, a rather famous Buddhist monk. But so he was a big influence in the absence, because he was my godfather. And so I had these three influences. And so I kind of dreamt of doing magic, mystical things in the world Mm. and um, had mystical experiences as lots of children do. And so then um, I, I'm sorry, I can't quite think how to condense it. But anyway, I grew up in an unusual setting and um, with a passion for 
altered states, mystics. I started studying them when I was probably about 10. Really? Yeah. And, um, and it became rather a passion. And in, in the, the place we lived, this, it got three moats, and it was very overgrown. And in between the moats, there was a, a mound, a very beautiful mound, where I had a kind of pet god who lived in the mound. I called Zia. And my kind of um, my mission was making this god figure laugh. So mm. that was the aim of the game. So when, um, when you say you studied uh, the mystical states at 10, like, how so? How were you doing that? Um, well, when I started reading, I started reading about it, but I didn't read. I, I don't know what I meant by that. But when I went to church, Catholic church, with my mother, and there was incense and all that sort of thing, mm. and I had kind of mystical experiences with Jesus. I was very cr- close to Jesus in those days. And um, then, uh, whatever. Uh, but it was a kind of rather wild, quite a dangerous upbringing. Um, we had to do the farming, it was quite, it was a mixture between rather kind of beautiful setting, but quite a mixture with peasant life of looking after the animals and um, farm farm animals, Mm. pigs, cows, all of that sort of thing. And um, then at one point I decided I wanted to leave home and I went to a boarding school, which was a terrible mistake. And... um, a convent, and actually I won the sound, when I was 16, won the sounds prize. I was, I was quite clever, but I hated it. It lived outside the boundaries of the school all the time. And then I wanted books on Buddhism because I, for my prize, and the nuns said, no, no, we can't give you books on Buddhism. And so I said, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll leave. Thanks very much and educate myself, which is what I did. I left school at 16. Really? And, um, and it was because edu- they wouldn't allow you to study Buddhism? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that was what I chose to study, and they wouldn't, so I said thanks. In the original days of the church, the incense, what they would walk down the aisle with, that was yeah, cannabis. That, that was beautiful. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I loved about that convent, there was a, in the chapel, it, they had even song, and this Italian nun with a, voice of an angel and it really with the incense mm. took one into a mystical space yeah and that was very special that was the high point of it they used to use cannabis and then the host what did the host used to be the host i mean obviously originally it was a psychedelic yes um do we know what psychedelic um i think different places are different ones but kind of based on mushroom or ergot or those mm. sort of things. Funny mm. enough, I'm rather keen on making sacred hosts. Um, I, I recently was involved in that. Anyway, that's a different story. But, but I'd love to hear that story. <laughs> you make sacred hosts? No, I don't, but I'm going you, to. You're going I'm, to? I'm intending yeah. to. I once actually, a story which was very much shock, um, probably a Catholic conference, um, not so, uh, well, once I was in Paris and we were walking by Notre Dame on a Sunday and very high and um, went into the church and lovely Eucharist. 
I hadn't heard all those wonderful songs. I love those Latin mm. 16th century, what, 15th mm. century um, chanting. And so I experienced having the host again. And it was so delicious. Spiritually, it was mm. wonderful. And so I can absolutely see originally the host was a psychedelic experience. And it's with that music and the incense, it's a beautiful spiritual experience. Yeah, I'm sure that was probably the root of a lot of those religious ceremonies. Yes, I think so. Have you read uh, John Marco Allegro's book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross? No, I haven't, no. Is that a good one? It's an amazing book. Right. John Marco Allegro was an... Oh, yes, I remember his name. I remember his name. I don't think I've ever read him. He was an ordained minister who was a a religious scholar and Mm -hmm. an expert on language, and he was one of the uh, deciphers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right, So he worked with that for 14 years. They deciphered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right, And then he wrote The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, which was his interpretation of what the Dead Sea Scrolls was really all about. Right, And he believed that the origins of Christianity were in the consumption of psychedelic mushrooms and fertility rituals. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm sure psychedelics were at the root of all of those spiritual yes. practices and Most part likely. of them. Most likely. Yeah. So when you were first experiencing these things, like what year are we talking about when you first got ex- excited about these things? Um, let me just think for a moment. Um, well, I first smoked cannabis when I was 16. And funny enough, the first time I smoked it, Ray Charles was playing. Oh, wow. And I, oh, I felt this is paradise. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I, I bet a, millions of people had Ray Charles on our first sounding of um, cannabis. But it was wonderful. It's amazing what it does to music. Yeah, yeah. So I was um, 16, which was, um, I was born in 43, so whenever that was. Um, um, anyway, that's when I started smoking cannabis. And um, it was, I was at Oxford at that point with a very interesting group of... Um, they were older than the other students because they'd been in Korea, so they were much better educated. And they were smokers and um, introduced me to a lot of wonderful books um, like Against Nature and um, L'Autremont and well, rather wonderful Reading mm. material, and it was a very creative period. And at that point, as I'd left school by then, I had somehow got um, the world's leading um, expert, like um, what was the American one? Anyway, on um, comparative religions and mysticism, someone called Professor Zainer, who was at All Souls in Oxford and wrote a book called. Um, mysticism of the sacred and profane mm. and he became my tutor so I went and saw him twice a week which was a very kind of awkward um, meeting because so, um, um, I was very shy and he was very shy and it was in all cells <laughs> <laughs> and we both sat there cuddling the cats kind of thing and then finally I decided the best way forward was to bring my very very handsome um, cousin who was a student at Oxford because he was gay and that kind of loosened everybody up yeah, yeah. Oh, very smart. <laughs> and then it became very friendly trap. and fun yeah. and, but anyway he'd written this book which I actually 
didn't agree with, which was saying um, psychedelic uh, mysticism is sacred and profane. And he was a Catholic convert, actually. And he thought that he'd had one experience with mescaline, I think it was, and not liked it. Mm. And thought that they were a very different bracket to the experience you get through an endogenous mystical experience. Interesting. Which I don't actually think is necessary. I think they're the same experience, but obviously with different qualities. I've, I've heard you say that you believe that what psychedelics do is make the mind more fertile for these experiences. Is that yes. a good way to... Yes, that's exactly what I think. I think you're at that level where the ego's control has dissolved to some degree. And so it's like fertile gr ground. And so if you've, whatever, pre-trained, or if you're ready for a mystical experience, you're more likely to have it in that experience, mm. in that state of mind. So the mind is actually restricting us in many ways through the ego from having these experiences. Yes, I think so. And what psychedelics do is release those boundaries. Yes. I think that due to the... Um, evolution of man, Homo sapiens, and are taking the ape, taking the upright position. This is a theory I was introduced to in 1966. And actually, I think a lot of the details are probably wrong, but in concept, I think is true, which is um, the ape standing upright. One thing people haven't taken into account is obviously there are hundreds of acids that are standing upright, you free your hands, you run faster, you see further, all of that. But in the upright position, gravity is against the blood in the brain. Because in the brain there are two mm. fluid volumes, blood and cerebral spinal fluid, which is water, basically, which is made in the brain itself. So it has kind of squatters' rights in the brain. So um, when you're in the upright position, gravity is pulling the blood down. So I think probably with the upright position, we lost a small proportion of our blood supply. I mean, some animals, if you tie them upright, a dog, for instance, if it's tied up so it can't get down, it will start howling and go mad because it hasn't got the valves to keep the blood up. Mm. And we've obviously got a certain amount, but maybe we lost some blood at that upright position. And as a compensation for that loss, I think we developed an internal mechanism more than any other animal has um, done it, which is to direct the blood where it most needs to go. Obviously, all animals do that. They have the power to send the blood where it's most important to survival or whatever. And I think that through the use of the conditioned sound, the word, we learned to control that process more than any other animal. Mm. And over the millennia, we kind of built up our power to do that. So I think that's the secret of why humans, uh, you know, which is a, a talking, uh, talking ape, got control of the whole game because of our creation of language which enables us to do all these incredible things we do. Yes. But it also has a disadvantage, 
that our basic state is slightly low in blood in the dominant organ. Mm. So we have to keep this this mechanism of tight control where the blood is distributed, and that is evolved with the ego, which is essential. I mean, we wouldn't survive without the ego to kind of um, direct the blood where it's most needed. Um, people who lose their ego, and in the 60s when people took large doses of LSD, as it was then, every day, sometimes they lost their ego. They flipped out. Mm -hmm. And there was one occasion of uh, someone we knew who was in Ibiza, and he'd flipped out, and he put the key in the, his, the lock to open the door. Someone would say goodnight to him. He put the key in the lock and left him. And then in the morning, he was still there with the key in the door because the head hadn't told him, turn the key to open the door. <laughs> you know? so we, wow. We need the words to keep us, you know, yes. under control. Yeah. Um, so... It, the words have made us what we are, this incredible animal who can, um, you know, have a nuclear war if we want or know all the atoms in the body, all of those brilliant things we do, which is amazing. But we're also obviously a very deeply faulted animal at some point. We're, um, you know... Neurotic, psychotic, psychotic—you know—all mm -hmm. um, of those things because of this um, shortage of blood, and then the dependent on the meaning of the word. So, if we have a terrible conditioning, which a lot of people do, yes, um, the 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 separation from reality is, in a sense, in the meaning of the word. Mm. Um, so the danger of our society now, in a sense, is we're getting further and further away from nature, in a sense. And that, in a way, is why psychedelics can be a very useful medicine, because they increase the connectivity with the senses, with the with the internal bodily senses and also the outside perceptual senses. Um, so I actually think that we're entering a kind of new possible age, and that's why for fun I call it the psychedelic age, because for the first time we've got or getting the knowledge by which we can actually understand the brain better and understand how um, we can alter the volume of blood in the brain, which is giving the brain energy. The, the whole thing is mm. about energy. The more energy we have, the more parts of the brain can function simultaneously. And um, that obviously can be very um, creative, stimulating, um, empathic by just having more of the brain functioning. Um, and so I think that uh, the knowledge of psychedelics, and when I say psychedelics, I don't actually mean necessarily psychedelics, 
because as we all know, one can get these experiences endogenously through exercise or... Um, holotropic breathing. Holotropic breathing, exactly, or yeah. breathing exercise. I mean, all the spiritual training all knew that. That's what they were doing in the spiritual disciplines, mm. is teaching people how to control their internal ego and also their sense of consciousness. And I think at the center of the spiritual experience is the getting higher and loosening the grip of the ego mm. so you're more in touch with nature. Do you think that in the absence of these psychedelic experiences, one of the problems with words is that we develop narratives and then we use our ego to reinforce these narratives and we sort of deny objective reality. Yes. I think more and more the word can become the reality. I mean, mm -hmm. in the creation of words, which we all have and have to have and are thankful to have, but nevertheless it does create a, new, uh, a slightly different world. It's rather like... Um, the the shadows on Plato's wall, mm. one gets one's internal edition of the world rather than the real experience of the world. Mm. And so um, I, think it's, I think it's good to be in contact with nature and I think it's, it's a dangerous um, path that we're taking now where it becomes more and more um, um, life is the screen. Mm -hmm. um, but still, that's the way we're going. Yeah. And um, but, and it, it has great advantages as well as dangers, kind of thing. But I do think that the knowledge of getting high has always been central to the human evolution. And mm. At the earliest um, demonstrations of what we've got, of the earliest demonstrations of um, human culture, say the caves in Chauvet, do you know them? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which I, I think they've never been bettered. I mean, that, that artwork, the brush strokes of those animals, they're yeah. alive, you can see the movement. No one ever did it better. And it's like 30-something thousand 30, years old? Exactly, 35, 40, mm. something around there. Wow. So they, I can tell because I, um, some respects an artist, I know those strokes. Let's see, pull up some of those images, Jamie, because some of those yeah. images are, yeah, here we go. Yeah. Amazing stuff. They're just incredible, aren't they? Yeah. The movement of the animals, yeah, they caught, the feeling. Yeah, they um, did create a feeling of movement like the animals were running. Yeah, and the, the lines, I mean, anyone who paints, I mean, um, Picasso, I think, said, Without them, he would have never done what he did. Or mm. I, d I can't remember quite, but a mo modern art isn't better. It gets as good, but not really. It's crazy um, because they're depicting rhinos, too, which yeah. is really wild. That there there yeah. was rhinos in France. Yeah, beautiful ones of horses and mm. buffaloes. And, yeah. um, um, and, so, and that's in the bowels of the earth they do it. Mm -hmm. So it was obviously... A very spiritual, because why go into the bowels of the earth if it isn't the kind of magical, spiritual experience they're having? Yeah. And so I, I think without doubt um, they were high. 
how they got there was it through singing drumming or um mm. singing or was it through taking compounds funny enough I've recently been introduced met charming man who's um archaeologist in charge of Chauvet and I said I'd love to be able to analyze and see if we can find out if there's any remnants of right. some uh, psychoactive substance. And he said, I was very welcome to go there. So I'm very excited about the possibility. Are you aware of uh, Brian Murorescu's work? Yes, I know. Yeah. I knew him years ago. He approached me at the UN. Oh, And said great. he'd do um, pro bono lawyer work for me. Really? <laughs> but I never took it up. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe uh, it yeah, would help you better if this was on the top of your head. How'd you do that? It seems like it's falling. Like that? Yeah, yeah, you go. There you go. Yeah. That's better. Thank you. No, it won't fall down. So, yeah, uh, his work with uh, yeah. determining that uh, in, in Eleusis, that yeah, they were using absolutely. ergot and some other yeah. psychedelics. Yes. Now, I, I, know, I know the book. I know him. The Immortality much, Key yeah, yeah, yeah. for people that are listening. And, um, and also, I know from long ago, um, Carl Rook wrote the original book. Do you know that one? The, no. The Road to Eleusis. Yeah, I've heard of it. Which yes. is a very good book yeah. with... Um, with Albert Hoffman and and um, the banker, what was his name? Anyway, um, so they know that those people, at least yeah. back then, the Eleusinian yeah. mysteries, that yeah. they were using psychedelics. Yeah. And do you know it's obvious from the art? What I can, what I think, is that one can sense when the civilization was um, had at its source the use of altered states of consciousness. I see them as, you know, civilization rather like the cutting of a tree. You see the rings. Mm -hmm. Some years are drought and other are sun and rain, and they are wide and flourishing. Yes. Well, in in culture, I mean, that Eleusis, and that um, Chauvet, Mm -hmm. I mean, they must have been high to produce that incredible art. Mm. And the same at um, Eleusis and all of that Greek. I mean, it's never taught at schools and things. Both my sons did classics at Oxford. None of them, it was never mentioned Eleusis. Do you mm. know what I mean? Yeah. It's amazing. That center of the whole classical world is the mystical experience of death and rebirth. Well, Harvard's opened up a field of study no, about this. No, thing. Yeah, yeah, which is quite but interesting. I knew a um, student 20 years ago who wanted to do his PhD in Eleusis. And Harvard told him, if you do that, you won't get it. Yeah, that yeah. was a giant problem after 1970, correct? Mm-hmm. Like after the sweeping psychedelic DAC where they made everything Schedule One, psilocybin, yeah. Yeah. mescaline, everything. And when they did that, they, they not only did they ruin the possibility of having those experiences for so many people because it was forbidden, because it was very dangerous, you could get arrested, but also it stopped all the research. Yes, absolutely. For 50, it was 50, 60, 70 lost years, which is a criminal thing, actually. And the untold suffering of the millions of people who went to prison, usually from minorities, and had their lives ruined by a record, Mm-hmm. For maybe having th- been caught for a joint three times or whatever. Right. I mean, it is horrific, it's horrific what happened. And well, there's people in jail right now for that yeah. in this country, which is insane. It's insane. And, I mean, I started fighting that back whenever, when I started the Beckley Foundation. I, I saw that in order to 
do research, one had to change the drug policies. And the two went hand in hand because doing the research would help change the drug policies. And in order to do the research, you had to change the policies. Mm. I mean, it was a bit of a catch-22 because until you've done the research, you can't do it, <laughs> if you see what I mean, because right. they make it so difficult to do. Well, I think what MAPS has done, which is genius, is um, their work with MDMA and soldiers, and soldiers having PTSD. Absolutely. Because uh, yeah. the general, I mean, when you think of soldiers, you think of people in the military, you generally think of people who are right-wing who uh, have more authoritarian leanings, yes. but yet these are the people that would be aided the most by these psychedelics, particularly coming back from war. Absolutely. So because of that, I believe they've opened up a door Absolutely. to an understanding. I think it's very, very important. And that's why in the 70s, because I was involved in it in the 60s mainly, when my passion to change the world started when I first really knew the value of psychedelics, which was probably in 65 onwards. And as the door of repression came down, one could see it's a kind of disaster for humanity. Yes. But I thought the only way we could overcome it is by using the language of the establishment to prove that these compounds can actually heal humanity, not be damaging for humanity as they were advertised as. Mm. But actually, there are our route to healing yes. and better happiness, more fulfilled life. And so I thought that that's why I started doing the sounds, to try to, with the language of the modern world, which is sounds, to demonstrate how valuable these compounds are and I think our first, that's why I set up the Beckley Imperial Study. And the first study we did was using psilocybin. And then we saw that I wanted to do LSD, but we couldn't do LSD in those days. Um, it had to be psilocybin. And as no one knows what psilocybin is, how it's spelled, what, what it means. It's not so taboo. Mm -hmm. So we got permission. And um, I wanted to do brain imaging to look into our hypothesis that what they do is increase the volume of blood in the in the brain capillaries. Mm. And hopefully with the MRI one would see that. But, but anyway, what we did see in the first study we did with psilocybin was a decrease of blood in the um, default mode network, which is a modern expression of the ego, mm. or part of the ego. And that was very interesting because the default mode network, i.e. the ego, is hyperactive underlying psychological um, conditions like depression or anxiety or addiction or all of those things have a hyperactive ego saying, I need a drink, I'm so depressed. Yes. And we saw that psilocybin lowers the blood supply to that part of the brain. Mm. And so then actually we got a government grant to help us do the next phase of the study. So I think it's very important showing how, because as we all know, we're in an epidemic of mental illness now, yes. getting ever more. And 
rather surprisingly, and in a way rather ironically, science, which has been so determined to prove that the spiritual is an old man in the sky, sitting just total right. rubbish, which he finally has done, um, now at the very centre of the new healing, i.e. psychedelic-assisted therapy, is the mystical experience. And what we showed is the people who underwent what can be categorized as a mystical experience, i.e. a loosening of the ego, a feeling of unity, those are the ones who have the best outcomes of overcoming their depression. Mm. So it's a rather a beautiful little um, ironical twist Yes. that now suddenly the psychedelics are at the center of this new approach to healing. And I think the healing of psychedelics goes much, much farther than what we've touched on so far, which is um, the psychologically-based conditions. I, I think it can be very, very useful in different doses because what is so wonderful about psychedelics is they have different, totally different effects in the different dose. Right. And at the um, mini-micro-dose, um, I, I'm beginning to have evidence, and I'm just starting a study, which shows the amazing potential results of microdose for Alzheimer's. Really? Yeah. Absolutely Interesting. Absolutely amazing. Remarkable. Really? Yeah. And I was watching a video yesterday on cannabis and Parkinson's. It was yeah. incredible. Yeah. There was a gentleman who had horrible loss of control of his body and the shaking. Mm. And they gave yeah. him cannabis oil, yeah. and he put it under his tongue, and a few minutes later, he's lying back on the couch, and then he holds his hands out, and his hands yeah. are dead straight. I'm like, this Wonderful. is extraordinary. extraordinary. And my um, partner, before, who um, um, is the father of my children, he got Parkinson's. So I was very well, I'm very fond of him. Mild Parkinson's, but still it was Parkinson's. And so I'd heard how... And I've studied it, how microdosing ibogaine mm. is very good for um, my minimizing. So I'm wanting to do, I'm setting up a research into that. Interesting. You know, I think, uh, and I think also... Yeah, this is the gentleman right here. This is exactly the video oh, yes. that I saw. So I this guy has yeah. terrible loss of control ah, of yes. his body. He can ah. barely hold the cannabis oil ah. in his mouth. Ah, poor man. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. it, he's struggling yeah. so bad. Uh, but now, why? It says one thirty-seven p.m. Uh, this is when he takes it, and then you see just a few minutes later uh, they show him lie back, and this is at. Uh, go ahead, Jamie. Uh, that's one forty-one. Uh, look at uh, this. Look I mean, at not even uh, ten minutes. That is. Magic. And look at this. And he's uh, he's fine. He sits up, uh, and he's he's just blown away by. It. He's like it's so uh, quickly. And look at look, his hands. Incredible. No, that is wonderful. I have a friend who has a child yes. that has a pretty severe autism, ah. and when he gives the kid cannabis, yes. when he gives him edible cannabis, it yes. just stops it. Yes. It just stops it. The kid yeah. can absolutely make eye contact, communicate. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I could show you. The trouble is I, can't, I can show you privately, but not uh, the, the person involved doesn't want it to go out, um, of a wonderful old lady, 
of 97 who had um, Alzheimer's for seven years or something, but she was very bright. She was a poet and a poetry and da da da, um, and was looked after by her son. And then he went away for a week, and someone else came and looked off. And when he came back, she was in a kind of um, acute vegeta- vegetative apathy, where she didn't recognize him, mm. just staring into space. And they discussed it before, and she'd said, yeah, she knew he sometimes took a psychedelic, and so he gave her a microdose of LSD, and an hour later, I've got the photograph, she's a little sparkling old lady with wow. her full contact with him, saying, I feel so wonderful, let's read some poetry now. Wow. You know, just like that man. Yeah. And then he contacted me and said, what, what should he do? So I said, well, first thing would be to get a doctor to help you um, manage it. And then continue with the lower doses gets that effect which was 10 microns, which is 10 millionth of a gram. I mean, such mm, a small dose, yeah. you would hardly think it could have an effect. And that does something which I'm doing research on now. To, I think it's to do with the connectivity between the different brain centers, which I think it sparks. Mm. And it brought her back. And her children said it was just remarkable. It's incredible. You know, and I've noticed the same things. I'm very... I'm, I've in the middle of getting going on an autism study because I think for certainly with level one, the layer lower um, degrees of autism, um, microdosing LSD can be enormously um, beneficial. Mm. And I've got a friend who's had experience of that um, and wrote a very good book about it actually called um, autism and LSD. And um, so now I'm designing a study, getting his advice on the autism level of things. And I, I think that what I think is what I'm fascinated in, and this is where I got this interest right back in 1966, are what are the mechanisms underlying that makes um, LSD and associated compounds, have the effect it has. And obviously then there was no brain imaging. So it was very difficult to see inside the brain. One could only uh, theorize about it, hypo- make hypotheses. Mm. And so this um, Dutch scientist who I had a long relationship with had um, this hypothesis that it um, constricts, it's a vasoconstrictor, constricting the veins, so blood comes into the capillaries, can't get out, the capillaries blow up and squeeze out the cerebral spinal fluid, and then slowly over the year, hours, gravity um, pulls the blood down again. So mm. that's... Um, that's et- the theory. Yeah, and you go back to normal. But during that period of more blood in the brain, you have more energy. Now I'm looking into, now, how does it make more energy apart from providing more glucose and oxygen? And I've got a very, very interesting something which is coming up, which I'll tell you on my next talk about. Okay. (laughs) But (laughs) I'm very excited because uh, I think people, anyone you talk to would say, 
that the psychedelics or indeed cannabis, they all work on the same direction. I think they all, cannabis and the psychedelics have the same underlying mechanisms, but at different levels of, um, I think, the constrictions. Yeah. The psychedelics are much stronger because you obviously get much higher, you can, on the psychedelic. But they're going in the same direction. And that's what the endogenously... A lot of the... I'd love to know more about that, and I will if I've got time to do that, study into the underlying, um, you know, um, serotonin, dopamine, all, all the different enzymes, um, hormones in the body which can do these things endogenously. Yes. I mean, we know the saints got top high. Mm-hmm. Saint Teresa, her description of her um, orgasm with God, it's just like... A description of a psychedelic trip kind yes. of thing. So it's the same experience, but either got endogenously or through other ways. I think once one of the things that's very interesting about cannabis too is the difference between eating it yes. and and when your your body's producing eleven hydroxy metabolite from the eating of it, uh, it can produce a very powerful psychedelic experience. Absolutely. And um, my experiences with it where it's been very profound are with the sensory deprivation tank. Yes. I have a sensory deprivation tank and I do it with edible marijuana. Right. Right. And it's incredible. Right. And I think there's some, I've got a friend who grows marijuana and I think I'm very interested in the, um, he always wants me to work with one of the breeds, he breeds. Because it's, it is like a psychedelic, mm-hmm. and I thought I'd call it the if I do it, it the Beckley brain boost because he, he it brings back his memory mm. and it brings back. I I think they're very. I mean, we are only beginning to scrape the top of the knowledge yeah. of how these compounds work and how we can use them for humanity. Well, it's just very unfortunate that research was stopped for so long. Yes. It, and we're very fortunate that there's people like yourself and MAPS and, yeah. and some of the other groups that have continued research and have yeah. really pushed for the legalization of this. Yes, and I think now we, we've t- got a tipping point where I think we've got enough good research which really shows, without doubt, that we can get better results with using psychedelics to help and cannabis than we can get without it. Mm. And therefore, it's really criminal not to throw money at this research so we can get it out to the people quicker. Because access is what we need for all those people who have got terrible things they're suffering from, which could be helped. And, I mean, I I do as much research as I can, but I'm a tiny organisation, four or five people, and tiny amounts of money we've got. And so, and to get a study going takes a year of paperwork, mm-hmm. getting permissions, getting the compounds, which are I'm at the moment doing, because I'm wanting to re-civilize um, LSD, because I think LSD is actually the purest and cleanest of the compounds, and in many ways, the best, not... Not against, I think, but, uh, psilocybin and other ones are wonderful and they all have their different characteristics which are incredibly valuable. But it's a complete um, madness that the one which is really, in a way, 
the purest. It's a kind of opening up, a magnification of what we are with very little external colouring, mm. I think, LSD is. And as it is completely non-toxic, you can give it to people forever. Do you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not toxic. They aren't building up toxicity. A lot of, a lot of people are microdosing it now. It's yes. a very, very common thing, uh, microdosing yes. of LSD. And this, the, what they're reporting is an alleviation of anxiety, mm-hmm. a heightened state yes. of, mm. of wellness and of awareness and of uh, being in the moment. Yes. Clarity. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Just from a microdose. Yes. I mean, we actually did the first scientific research on the microdose. I was collaborating with Maastricht in Holland. And we did it on on 5, 10, 20, I think it was, those doses. And, I mean, it was amazing, the results. It um, increases mood. It increases neuroplasticity. It increases um, neurogenesis. It increases anti-inflammatory. It increases tolerance to pain, um, vigilance. You know, mm. all of these very valuable qualities yeah. in a microdose. Yeah. And we could be using that with all sorts of indications which need actually more energy to kind of overcome certain deficits. And all sorts of therapy applications because you do it and you're essentially completely sober. Yes. In in the sense of you can communicate, you see things clearly, everything is fine. Yes. But you have achieved a a very elevated state. Absolutely. But you say everyone can do it. It's only those very few who know how... I I come across innumerable people who I, I know someone who you know who has terrible migraine mm. and um, he had a microdose of LSD and it cured it mm. and he has terrible problems in getting it and um, it's not easy to get. No. Oh, so no, do you not. see what I mean? And, yes. um, and a lot of people don't want to have to go onto the dark web but don't right. know, I have no idea how you do the dark web. Do you know what I mean? Right. And what <laughs> you you're know. opening yourself up to when yeah. you get on the dark exactly. web. Exactly. Yeah. You don't know what the product is. I mean, what I've said about the, I mean, I spent 10 boring years talking at the UN and places, not totally, but I went there, trying to say we should have a drug policy which is based on science, on harm reduction, on human rights, you know, and cost effectiveness. I mean, you know, and not one which is the exact reverse. Right. Well, that's sort of, sort of the problem is cost. The, the, the real problem is there's a vested financial interest in keeping these things illegal. Yeah. Because there's a lot of yeah. psychological medications that people are taking, psychiatric yeah. medications Absolutely. that people are taking that yeah. they really don't yeah. need. Yeah. Yeah. And it keeps the companies yeah. and also um, prisons were, yes. were the second biggest industry. Yeah. Um, because it's free labor and a lot of funding coming in. It's very in. twisted. Yeah. No. It's, it's awful. Yeah. That, yeah. that aspect of it yes. is terrifying. It is terrifying. And, I mean, I've been at it. I wrote a report on the, whatever you call them, the United Nations Convention on Drugs, which is obviously created by America, but 190 countries follow it. Mm. Actually, funny enough, America's the one which is breaking it, but doesn't allow the countries to break it. Um but not one word has been changed in 
yeah. the last 20 years. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. Especially when considering what we know now. Yeah, exactly. About the benefits of it. Yeah. Were you friends with Terrence McKenna? Did you know him? I knew him, yes. Yes, yes. What I, did you think of his stoned ape theory? Um, now, what was that? The stoned um, ape theory is the theory that ancient hominids... Um, when the rainforest receded into grasslands, they started experimenting with different food sources. One mm -hmm. of the things they started doing was tipping over cow patties yeah. to yeah. find grubs and beetles, and on those cow patties, psilocybin mushrooms yeah. would grow. Yeah. And that they started eating those, and that yeah. it increased visual acuity, it increased yeah. their uh, arousal states, yeah. um, and that they also think glossolalia, and so many yeah. different, the formation of language, so many things came about from that. Yes. I mean, I wouldn't put it exactly the way he put it, but I would say that we know animals. Um, we know that reindeer eat mushrooms. Yes. And as mushrooms are, yeah. exactly, as they're toxic, um, the king reindeer drinks the pee of the mm -hmm. uh, drug which has gone through, like the yes. big boss of the village yes. would get all the lower members of the village to take the psilocybin first or whatever and then drink the urine of cleaned out. Yeah. Um, got the clean version. Well, the reindeer also does that. And so animals have taken it. And I think, I think that psychedelics were an integral part of Homo sapiens evolution, if you see what I mean. Yes. I don't think it's the only feature at all, but I think it's yes. one of the major... Uh, you know, the, the development maybe of the mirror neuron was very important and one or two other things. But um, I think that's a major lift, I think, at the center of human culture is the experience of altered states of consciousness. Mm. He, he um, attributed it to the increase in brain size. He believed that, you know, because of the uh, neurogenesis properties also of psilocybin, he thinks that it may have contributed to the doubling of the human brain size over a period of two million years. I, I mean, I, I definitely think all of those things are showing up. I, I don't, I mean, he was a poet. He wasn't, yes. you know, he, wasn't he expressed a it necessarily. Um, poetically. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, I mean, he talked a lot of rubbish. I know that because I, I went to mm -hmm. a lot of conferences with him and I, I knew it. What did you I, think was rubbish? Well, I can't remember, but exaggerated things. The time zero? Well, the, whatever. Yeah, you know. time wave zero. Yeah, but at the same time, he's a very good poet and he had a lot mm -hmm. of very, you know, deep thinking. Well, he was very and, compelling. Yeah, absolutely. And that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And he got a lot of people to be interested yeah, in psychedelics exactly. because he was so interesting to yeah. hear. And a very good presentation. Yeah. An unusual yeah. voice, too. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. Irish. Yes. Yeah, yes, no, yes, very, yes. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I, th I think these compounds are integral to where human Homo sapiens has got to. And I think the disaster is that we started repressing it. I mean, obviously, even at the time of Jesus, it was kept secret. Yes. It was always kept secret, even at Eleusis, which went on for 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. They kept it secret. Probably that's why um, Socrates had to commit suicide, because he had it with his boyfriend at the dinner parties. Mm. Do you know... Um, it was only to be used sacredly. 
for the ceremonies. Yes. Which I actually think, um, I mean, so I think that's an incredibly important part of it, the ceremony. Mm-hmm. But I think also, as an elixir, when we get knowledgeable about how to use these compounds, they're just amazing health, mental health elixirs. Mm. And I think, um, I mean, I'm obviously, as I get older, very, very interested in how one can um, hopefully um, delay the... um, And it's all based on blood, you know. As we get older, the blood supply gets worse to the brain. So how does one keep the supply of energy as as topped up, basically, Mm -hmm. in the most beneficial way for the animal. Yeah. And I think, funny enough, the cerebral circulation is out of fashion. Um, Because we discovered about the cerebral circulation whenever we did 100, 200 years ago, it's considered old-fashioned. So modern science really isn't interested in the blood Mm. Actually, you know, everyone knows blood goes up, blood comes down. But um, there's very little interest in it. I mean, I worked with one of the leading Russian scientists who was on their space program and was the leading world expert on cerebral circulation involving cerebral spinal fluid and the relationship between cerebral spinal fluid and blood. And we worked together for about six years and then he died in COVID at 80-something which was a tragedy, actually, because he also was very interested in the kind of related thing of the possible increase in pulsation brought about by trepanation, which is a very ancient mm. practice, which maybe brings the level of cerebral circulation back to childhood level, which is higher than the adult level. We should explain trepanation to people because trepanation is a very ancient practice of drilling holes in in one's head. And you decided to do, you were in your 20s when you did this? Um, Yes. And what what influenced you to do that? Like what was the motivation? Um, Well, it was the theory of it which induced me to do it. And in a way, I prefer not um, talking too much about it, not because I'm not in favor of researching it, but because I haven't done the research. Mm. So I can't say, look, this has been proven by science, right. which until then people didn't believe psychedelics worked. Right. They would say that's um, placebo, fancy. Only that when you show in science, then it, it works. But anyway, the hypothesis is that when we are born, as we all know, there's the fontanelle, which are holes, which close soon, and you can see the pulsation in the fontanelle hole of the baby. You can see brain pulsing. Mm-hmm. And then the holes close, but the sutras, the bones, are quite flexible. So there's still the full pulsation, the full systolic pulsation is happening. Then as you grow and the bones grow together, slowly, slowly, some of the pulsation is suppressed. 
because it hasn't got the room to explore. Mm. So the hypothesis of trepanation, which has been done now, the earliest skull found, is funny enough, the archaeologist at Chauvet um, told me, um, near Chauvet they found a trepan skull um, of 25,000 years old. Mm. And you can see if the person lived after the trepanation... As the bone grows. Goes, yes, yeah. and softens. Mm. So that's kind of, I think... I haven't been studying it for the last 20 years because I've been on to psychedelics too much. Right. But I long to because it's very close to what I want to do. Do we know the origins of trepanation? Do we know that how it was... Uh, we know it's the oldest operation in the world, that it's done all around the world... It's very much associated with um, r religion, mysticism. Um, very often the skulls which are trepanned have a special burial. They are buried in a, in a pot or with a silk around the eye, showing that they were either priest cast or royal cast or something. Hmm. Um, but they are very present in every culture interested. Not very present, but present. present. And the the biggest um, mass of Trapan skulls, funnily enough, I think is on the German-Dutch border. <laughs> I don't mm. know why. But, um, From what time period? Prehistory. I, I, I'm afraid my memory's back and I haven't been studying it lately. But the, the thing is, wherever you look, there's, there's I mean, the third eye, the, the, the thing in your picture, mm -hmm, the third the logo, eye, yeah. um, I was told by a um, thing, is a, is a visualization of the third eye. And one of the high, um, whatever, I can't quite think of the word, the high aims of Buddhism spiritually is by meditation opening your hole in the skull. And that's in beautiful uh, old Tibetan art showing um, energy coming mm. in and out of the hole in the head. So it's always been the priest. Why I think the priest caste was associated with it, because I think that on the whole it was the priest caste which took the compounds to get high, whatever they were, mushrooms or argot. And the danger of getting high is when you come down, you have a bad time. Maybe flip out, but have a bad time. And I think it was probably observed that the people with a fractured skull or wound or whatever it was, a hole in the head, actually slightly kind of rose to the top in the village, in the thing. They became the doctors or the shamans or... Um, it seems to have an advantage. Hmm. Because, like in Mexico... Skulls, everyone grows up with skulls. You, you know, they have mm -hmm. skulls. There's a... There's like these. A, these Day of the Dead skulls. They're not real. They're... Uh, no. Right. Well, I, I, I've seen... I mean, because I was interested in... I've seen quite, quite a lot of skulls. In fact, I've even got one, which is, I think it's... I can't quite remember, 400, 700 BC. Wow. An Irish chieftain is meant to be... Um, and it's got actually six holes in it. Wow. And why anyone wants to do six holes, I have no idea. Some of them are quite large, too. Yeah, yeah. But 
I think, I, I personally think that the change it happens with one hole. All you need is for the membrane to be able to expand on the heartbeat. And I think what the restoration at the point of trepanation is allowing that expansion on the heartbeat to the full expansion of the systolic pressure, which the child has until it starts to close over, kind of 13 onwards, the child comes down, 21 was average, the skull closes. And that's often when the mental problems start after 21, mm. psychosis and all of those things. Um, you're just at a slightly lower level in terms of energy for the brain. And what I want to do, it's a very easy research to do, trepanation, because people are doing it in hospitals every day by the thousand. If it's any brain operation, first you have to trepan the skull. Right. So it's happening all the time. Mm -hmm. So we could very easily, actually. I work with some very top-level um, scientists in Mexico, and I want to get that study going again, and particularly doing it for headaches, migraine, because um, it used to historically, in my father's encyclopedia, which is whatever, 1912, I can't remember when it was, something like that, um, it said trepanations, blah, 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 have been done throughout history, and um, it is still currently being done with apparent success for the treatment of mental conditions, migraine, and da-da-da. Mm. So until um, in the First World War they did the first lobotomy, and that stopped trepanation as just an old wives' tale. So in a sense, they threw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm. And I think that there is something then it's quite easy to do so i'm i'm my i'm trying to find the possibilities and i really want to do this research um with japanation um funny enough years ago i was at burning man and i had a campaign um uh, what was it barlow barlow was an old friend of mine, and he got a lot of rather important people to sign up that they wanted to be trepanned. And we were going to do, uh, you know, so getting people trepanned legally mm -hmm. in a research program. But it never happened. But um, what I want to say is that, uh, for instance, Jamie, my husband, got trepanned. And, um, How long ago did he do that? How long ago? How long ago did he do it? Um, long time ago. I mean, soon after we got together. And very difficult to find. We were looking for someone in Egypt and found a wonderful surgeon there, actually, mm. who did it, uh, who's very interested in the kind of mathematics of uh, uh, pyramids and things. And um, he had terrible headaches all his life. He lost a day or two a week. Mm. On headaches, after he trepanation, he he doesn't have headaches. Wow! And I think it just gives back to the body and the brain that extra pulsation, which means, I mean, you have it from all that exercise you do. So constantly you're getting that extra blood to the brain through your exercise. Um, but it, for those of us who don't do all that exercise. 
it's good to have alternative ways of keeping the blood going. That's got to be a big factor in the runner's high. Yeah. Because in runner's high, they, yeah. they achieve these states of elevated yeah. consciousness through Absolutely. running. Yeah. I met one, I'm sure you've met plenty, but who runs, ran, I think he said a hundred, um, forty or so, some enormous number, a hundred miles or something. And he said at a certain point, he had a breakthrough where he got into a kind of real altered state of consciousness. Mm. And I'm sure one day we can do all these things endogenously. Yeah. I mean, obviously, that's what meditation is doing. It's training you to do your own way yes. of getting high. And monks and people, um, they productively spend 30 years of their life doing it. And I think that's wonderful. But for those of one, us who would like a quicker technique, <laughs> I think there's nothing wrong than learning to use a non-toxic substance sure. to help us get up there. Yeah. And so I think, it, funny enough, I think the new, how I look on it, it's all about feeding the brain with enough energy, mitochondria working away, to produce that mental cell energy so that we can keep our function close to the optimal. That's what we want. Mm. Or, anyway, not allowing it to drop too low. Right. And that's what I think is the purpose, in a way. Not, not the only purpose at all. Because, I mean, there's, I actually think psychedelics have value in a lot of different non-specific areas. One is self-realizations, experience, beauty, love of beauty, love of sound, love of people, love. Yes. In, I think it increases compassion and empathy and nature love and all of those rather good human qualities. Um, so I think it has the sensible use of the psychedelics, and by that I also mean cannabis, I mean the consciousness-altering techniques. And I think those people who do it purely by meditation are to be very much um, admired because it's wonderful not to need an outside thing to just right. to be able to do it within your own self. Yeah. Like a hot bath and a freezing bath or any of those techniques obviously change your level of consciousness mm -hmm. by bodily reactions. Yes. But also I think the use of the psychoactive compounds we can, you know, tune it so it's a very, very carefully regulated, I mean, self-regulated um, operation. You can dial it in. Yeah, you can, you can control it. Yeah. And I feel very grateful for many things in my childhood, but one of them was that I was my father's companion and he was a diabetic. And he was an artist, so he didn't like his sugar level going high because then you lose your sight and his terror was going blind. So he always kept his sugar level low. So every day he was getting short of carbohydrates, falling in a ditch. 
If he was driving a car, he drove over the centre of roundabouts. Mm. You know, he did all sorts of funny things when he was short of carbohydrates. And my job was putting the sugar in his mouth. Mm. And so I got a very good relationship of knowledge of how the glucose level controls your level of concentration, if you like, and how important it is. So when Bart, this Dutch scientist, told me his hypothesis of um, the psychedelics increasing the volume of blood in the brain capillaries, and particularly if you're doing a cognitively demanding activity, you use a lot of glucose and the sugar level falls. Therefore, you need to keep the sugar level normal by increasing the intake. And actually, all those years before it was legal, um, we lived on LSD. When I say live, I meant on big doses every day. We were... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we really lived... And I psychoanalyzed myself... On myself, I was doctor and patient, mm. and I read the whole of whatever, or Freud, Reich, Did you make Nietzsche. notes? Did you take a journal during that time? Not a journal, but I did diagrams of, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, and I watched myself. I overcame, for instance, um, I, I was very tall as a child, and I t- rather kind of hated being taller than everyone else. So at about 13, I started smoking um cigarettes behind the bushes. So I was pretty addicted by the time I met Bart when I was 22 or 23, I can't remember. I was pretty addicted. And he said, what a horrible habit it is, was mine, smoking. So then I said, well, I'll give up. And so I took a trip of LSD with the intention, I'll stop. It's a horrible habit. Mm -hmm. Just give it up. And I never smoked another cigarette. And so, do you remember when you did that? When you took the LSD with the intention of giving up cigarettes? Yeah. Do, you, do you remember what what happened to you? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. What was I, re- it like? I, re- I remember smoking a cigarette during the trip and thinking, "Yuck, it's disgusting." I remember when I was a child, young child, smoking it made one feel a bit sick. Mm. One had to repress the feeling yeah. of sickness, and then I realized, "Gosh, it makes me feel sick." Yeah. And then, yeah, the well, smell it is, is making horrible. You sick. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I gave up. And 40 years later, whenever, when I was talking to Roland Giffis, funnily enough, I had, I think it was $10,000 to, to do a research program. So I went to um, Roland at that time, said, I've got this. He said, oh, what would you like to do? What would you suggest? So I said, well, what about overcoming nicotine addiction? I did that with LSD. We could do it with psilocybin try. And that was the basis of the mm. um, study, which is, I mean, I remember the first, but the first lot was 80% success rate. Uh, no, yeah, 80% success rate. I don't know what it is now. But, but it's an extraordinarily successful yeah. because actually nicotine is more difficult to give up than heroin because you're always repeating it. And, mm. um, so I experimented in those years when we were living on LSD. We, we worked. That was our passion. We were studying the human brain and the self. And the, the T-shirt I've got for you is um, the motto is, Know Thyself. Mm. And that was what, 
problem of doing, trying to understand how we work better mm. at that level and how we can enhance our working. And um, I just think there's a lot more to be learned about how we can, um, if we concentrate more on f giving the brain the energy it needs to uh, function optimally, how can we help that happen? Obviously, exercise is one. Yes. Um, I've always slightly avoided the exercise route, <laughs> being, being lazy. Um, <laughs> but um, I have to say, you know, there are alternatives which can be used to the health of the person. And I think it's a tragedy that one can't one talk about things more openly. Yes. It's not easier to carry out research because... I know, having done it for now over 20 years or over 50 years, trying to do research into psychedelics, how difficult it is. I mean, in order for me to do it, I realized I had to stop being Amanda Fielding. No letters after my name, no money, so who am I? And become a foundation. Funnily enough, it was a very clever conceptual artwork because in England, it's very kind of liberal England, you pay whatever it is, and you become a foundation, a thousand pounds, I think, or something. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you're a foundation. You don't have to have any money. You're just a foundation. Registered. In Scotland, I'm registered. And then I got the top scientists in the world, 10, 15 of them, including Albert, Albert Hoffman and Sasha Shulgin, but the more important ones were the established one, ones like... Um, um, I always forget his name. He was wonderful. Colin Blakemore, who was a kind of top neuroscientist in the world at that point, and he very much backed what... We were going to start a centre at Oxford studying it, but that was going to cost four million and we couldn't get it. And various other high-level scientists. So I had a very impressive advisory board. And so then I gave... Seminars, series of seminars at the House of Lords where I had presidents and blah, 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 all the head of NIDA, head of the Russian people, and asked themselves if they could come. So 70 invited people came to discuss global drug policy. And that made quite a difference. That went on for 10 years or something. And then I went to the, whatever, the national, what would you call it? Um, um, anyway. I advised certain governments and things on drug policy. The United Nations went there regularly, trying to change things. So through this foundation? Yeah. yeah. If you don't mind, when you had your own personal experience with trepanation, what mm. was that like? What, yeah. what did it do for you? Yeah. Um, it was... Um, sorry, can I... Do you mind if I... Sure. Um, I remember... I mean, no one wants to drill a hole in their head on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. Right. <laughs> I can tell you, it is not something. I'm a very cautious person. And so I, I had a deep interest in it because I had very 
deep understanding of the hypothesis of um, blood supply, and I was interested in researching it. Then, um, um, my partner, Joey Mellon, um, at that time, he was very keen on Japaning himself, and he uh, was a second son, so he kind of was a bit more casual, cavalier about it than I was, and so had quite a few missed shots oh, no. <laughs> before he finally got through. And um, funny enough, then I did notice a difference. And the difference is very subtle. You really have to know a person to notice it. But how I'd express it is it slightly lowers the neurotic characteristics, if you see what I mean. Mm. They become, I mean, they don't, they don't eliminate them in any way, but it lowers it. And so having seen the difference, because Bart was Japan before I knew him, so I never experienced the change. But when I saw the change in Joe, I thought, well, it does make a difference. So I had thought I'd find a doctor. So I'd spent four years looking for a doctor to Japan me. Um, and I had people who said they would, nearly, and then they said, ah, if God meant us to have a hole in his head, he would have given us one. Or, <laughs> <laughs> or you know, and, oh, it could be bad for my career in Harley Street if it came out or if you died right. or, you know, whatever. Yes. And so it didn't happen. So then I thought, well, I'm a sculptor. I'll sculpt my own skulls and see what happens. So I really studied it because I'm a very, very cautious person. And in London, strangely, the, the shop was called Down Brothers. It's off Holly Street and has all the instrumentation for trepanation. Very early, old shop, actually. And charming staff there who showed me in detail how you trepan, because I went in as an interested observer. Mm. And so I learned how to do it very cautiously. There are three layers of bone. And et cetera, et cetera. I learned how to do it. So I felt competent to do it. And that, that took quite a long time deciding I was competent and confident I could um, do it. So I decided to make a film of it because I thought that would kind of separate me from the unpleasantness of doing such a silly thing. And so I made, I, funny enough, my great aunt just died and given me £70, and I bought a lovely little movie. Super 8 camera, and set it up. And I had my beloved birdie always with me, so he, he was an observer of this thing. And there was all sorts of stories, which I won't waste the time, which was amazing, because because we were asked to a party by rather kind of guardian journalists, uh, top journalists in England, for the Saturday night. I had been planning on doing it on the Sunday, but I moved it forward, so I thought it would be good publicity for the movement if uh, I... I um, anyway, I moved it forward. And then there was the electricity strike in England. So if I hadn't moved it forward, the electricity would have been cut, oh. which was just a kind of good little trick of beating fate mm-hmm. to do it. So anyway, I did it very, very carefully with a hand trapan in the mirror, 
perfect little operation. What kind? Was it a drill? Drill, electric drill. But I use a ball with a flat bottom so it couldn't damage the membrane because obviously what one's frightened of is damaging the membrane surrounding the brain. Right. I mean, I don't want to go into detail with it at all, but um, all I can say, I... I did it, I knew the second I was through, because the second you're through, there's no resistance. Mm -hmm. And it had a flat bottom, so it couldn't. I mean, it's not something one wants to do at all. But it's it's a kind of like people go skiing, people go horse riding, just the same danger. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a danger. Possibly the infection is the only danger. That's it. Um, and I always say no one should do it themselves. It's a foolish thing to do. Um, but then, the, so when I'd finished, I bandaged up. Uh, we went out and had steak for dinner to replace the lost blood, and then went to this party. <laughs> and um, the photograph, which I don't know if you know, with Birdie on my shoulder, was the evening that, that came out of the Super 8 movie. Um, so. I've seen the images, yeah, uh, but I, I haven't seen. The, uh, apparently, you never released the video. Of I never released it, and the person who made the film actually, as always, conned one. Um, so, I I had forbidden to let the images out on public thing because I didn't want I didn't want anyone doing it. Right, you know? and funnily enough, why, why did you not want anyone doing it? Because I don't think self-promotion is a good idea. But you did it. Yeah, but I'm me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I took trouble not to. And funny enough, then um, when I was, did an artwork in New York about it at PS1, because at that period I was trying to educate the world through art. And I had this exhibition at PS1 um, of the slides, enormous great. It was like an Egyptian tomb. It was lovely, the enormous room they gave me it. And um, apparently people were queuing up, including people like um, Warhol and uh, Bernardo Bertolucci, couldn't get in, blah, blah, blah. It was a kind of quite a mm. hot movie at that point. And people fainted, it said in the papers, like ripe plums falling to the ground. <laughs> but wow. um, then um, 60 Minutes did a film of it of me and wanted to f- film me back at Beckley with Birdie, with my pigeon, who was never in a cage, or always free. And um, so they flew me home on Concord because I was pregnant with my oldest son, Rocky, and to film me with Birdie. And Birdie was very um, strong sense of justice and I'd broken the code of love by going away. So if I went away, he punished me until the, the punishment had been done. So when they flew me back on Concord, he wouldn't come down from the housetop. Oh. <laughs> anyway, they made this film, and he was very pleased, very nice director. And then it was, um, as always, when one did something which was well done, it was... Um, um, not allowed to go out mm. because the lawyers said there'll be a 
uh, epidemic people drowning themselves. Which Were you worried fair. about that? Were people copying you? No. No? No, not really. Just too crazy? Yeah, too crazy. <laughs> <laughs> what was your personal experience like? What was it like yes. after it was over? Sorry, you asked me that. Um, how I described it at the time was it was like the tide coming in. There was a kind of stillness in the brain, that internal, endless internal conversation of basically the ego. Calm down. Now, of course one can explain all of those things could happen anywhere just from relaxation of having finished it, not mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, so what difference does it make? I would say it makes a slight difference. It's slightly like the energy. I mean, I watch children. Children have that extra energy. Mm -hmm. You know, they do those leaps and runs and play around and that energy. Yeah. Adults don't. Uh, energy is a more difficult thing. And when I became 21, I'd had one of my trips to Egypt where I live very wild. Da -da -da. And I thought I got bilharzia, which is a worm you get and drains your energy. And I went, when I got, I was 21, I, I went, got myself tested thinking I'd caught it, but I hadn't. Then I realized that that was adulthood. Mm. It's a slightly lower level. And very often that's when people have their first schizophrenic experience or some mental thing after that. It's a down, it's a slight down. Um, there's a slight exuberance, and that's what I noticed after. But the, the difference is so slight, I couldn't swear on it at all. How long did the difference last? Well, you don't, you only notice the difference. You don't notice the change. The, mm. Do you see what I mean? Yes. So now I can't say. Have I got any advantage? Is my hole closed? Is it open? Da, da, da. I, I can't say. Have you ever got looked at to see if it's closed? Um, no. Um, I, I tried to, actually, and it was very difficult to do. I'd like to do that. It's a very small hole, though, right? Well, I've, uh, it was that big. Okay, so a quarter of an inch, a couple millimeters? It was wide enough. All you need is for the heartbeat mm -hmm. to express itself. It's all about the expression of the heartbeat. And it takes half an hour. If, if, if it was shown to increase cranial compliance, which is what I worked on with this professor, uh, Yuri Boskalenko, who was a leading professor in, in those things, he thought, yes, it increases cranial compliance. And that's just a slightly healthier state to be in. Mm. And so it takes half an hour to do. Uh, in hospitals, the nurse does it. The surgeon doesn't have to do it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a nothing operation. Um, so if that can slightly raise the level of energy going to the brain for the rest of the life, it's a valuable tool. But do you think that these people that have multiple holes 
in their head. Is there um, like a point of diminishing returns when they're I, doing I, I should think they had migraine or some terrible mm. thing which went on. And they were trying to alleviate it. And tried to, or, yeah, I think something like that. Mm. Um, because I don't see the, the logic of it says you only need one to get the expansion back. But that's why I actually don't talk about it now because it sounds so crazy. Right. That's the problem is this yeah, it sounds crazy. optics. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's not good optics. Until you've got it proven, which I actually seriously want to do, because what I do it is on, on uh, research with people with headaches, migraines, headaches, whatever, some form. Because that's one of the things that all cultures who did it, one of the things they did it for was headaches and insanity. They, in the old days, they said, it's letting devils out. And the other indication is letting light in. Because orphan people in the mystical tradition were trepanned. Mm. So uh, I, re- I, I actually, before I hit the bucket, I would really like to have done that research mm. because uh, maybe no one else will be motivated to do it. Right. Has anyone been motivated to do self-trepanation that you are friends with or that you're Yeah, I, I know quite a lot. Not a lot, but a few. I mean, and then they started saying, oh, would I, trepan? I certainly won't trepan anyone. I wouldn't dream of it. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. See, that's why I found a very good uh, surgeon, um, brain surgeon and team in, in Mexico who did it. So he, uh, he did it for certain people. But, and people wrote back saying it had altered their life. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think, if I was asked, do I think it has effect or not, I'd say I, I, I wouldn't be humiliated if it didn't, but I think it does. Mm. That's my opinion. For instance, it changed my dream pattern after I'd done it. I used to have very anxious dreams, which very often were about Birdie, my beloved Birdie, getting killed somewhere. After the trepanation, I didn't have those anxious dreams. So Mm. that's something which I couldn't control. Right. With me. Anyway, I think it makes a difference. So I'm in favor. But we need to do the research. Yeah. It's a fascinating subject. It's just fascinating that it's existed for so long. Yes. And very much associated with religious practice, mm. basically. Um, whatever. You know, very often, funny enough, there's in Mongolia some Japan skulls, and nearby is a very beautiful, this is very early, I forget, B.C., long, 700 maybe, a little beautiful basket with cannabis, rather high THC cannabis in it. I mean, I think they go together, um, the trepanation, you know, like in um, Mexico, they were, there were lots of trepanations, and they went with uh, the kind of spiritual practices. It's very fascinating to me that from the moment human beings have discovered altered states of consciousness, whenever that was, that it's always been a part of this desire to sort of escape the confines of modern consciousness or of natural consciousness. Uh, Yeah, it's to kind of slightly expand. Yes. Slightly get back the childhood experience. Mm, Yeah, joy, wonder. Yeah, joy, wonder. I do think it's that. 
And I think it's still that. And I think that's a very healthy urge. Yes. And I think, therefore, we should... I really seriously think we should do research on trepanation, which I can very easily do. It, it just needs ethical approval. That's the only mm. problem. Do you think um, that it's warranted... Uh, do you think that the use of psychedelics and uh, psychedelic therapy can replace that? That it's not necessary? Um, no, I don't think it replaces it. I think they're, as they were in the ancient times, they're, they're complementary. Mm -hmm. They're both, both moving in the same direction of trying to increase the energy supply to the brain, Yeah, basically. And I think that's very key for our future survival because at the moment I think we're at a very critical time because our artificial intelligence is getting greater than our own etc yeah. etc et there's all sorts of forces which which kind of build the danger up yes. so we need internal growth to balance that technological growth. Yeah, it's it's such a strange contradiction that today, in a day where that growth is so necessary, these substances are so demonized. Yes, it's a tragedy. And I really think it's the time, and America is a force which forced it upon us for all the wrong reasons, and we all know it, and America knows it. Yeah, um, it was during the Civil Rights Movement. They were, they were trying to... Arrest the Black Panthers and, yeah. and the, the civil rights activists yeah. and yeah. Yeah. all the anti-war activists, and that was one of the yeah. ways they could do it. Yeah, and it's the way to enter any country you want to, like Afghanistan or yes. or Latin America or mm -hmm. any country you can go and raid and spray and mm -hmm. kill and capture. You know, it was wonderful. The CIA loved it, and you know, and so it was. Which is it, so ironic, considering yeah. that they did so many LSD experiments. Yeah, and then threw the people who were troublesome out of the window and said they wanted to fly. You yeah. know, that's such a mm -hmm. typical... Uh, I mean, it's a tragedy, the history of altered states. I mean, like um, the, uh, the, what you call the midwives, used psychedelics to help stop bleeding. They realized the vasoconstrictive property of these compounds. So they were used in in childbirth. Mm -hmm. And the midwives, they were very often the people who were burnt for witchery. And the ironic thing is, when the witches were bought, burnt, then the villagers got a plague. They called it the witch's curse of St. Vitus's dance where you shake and, da -da -da, and then you finally die. And that's, um, that's ergot poisoning. Mm. Because the witches went out with their hats at the full moon. And their hats would show the glow of the ergot from uh, the light of the moon on the ergot. How did the hats do that? They, well, they, were kind of, or they hid them. I mean, that's, I think, where the hat story came. Because they collect the ergot by night because it's phosphorescent oh. from the moon. And then 
the burning of the witches, which was part of the Inquisition, basically, um, um, then they had these awful plagues of St. Vitus's dance, which was called the, the curse of the poor old witch who had been <laughs> using their medication to, to help childbirth. So it's quite ironic how the authorities translate it wrongly. I mean, basically it was because the witch wasn't gathering the ergot off the wheat, so the villagers were eating the poison mm. and therefore getting sick from the bread. Yeah, that's a, that, that was to me one of the most fascinating things about the Salem witch trials. Yeah. Is that they found out that there was a late frost and when they examined whatever crops that they could find back then, they did find ergot in them. Right. And they right. think that that was partially responsible for that whole hysteria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it was very much intermingled with the Protestants, uh, the Inquisition between the religions and the, um, the whole thing. It mm. came at the same time. Yeah. So uh, there's been a, a kind of tragedy. I mean, the, the point is, those in power actually don't want other people taking these compounds, like the Americans didn't want their soldiers taking acid right. because it made the soldiers say, gosh, actually, I prefer to be in the park with my girlfriend right. than in some bloody wood far away getting shot. Right. <laughs> you know, it's pretty common sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they know. didn't want common sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it's a tragedy of the human fate. I mean, the tragedy of humanity, us, is that... We've developed this compensatory mechanism, which has made us the genius that we are, and we can do all these brilliant things we do. But it also has made us this psychotic animal, which is capable of great self-harm. And somehow we need to balance it. Yeah. And that's why I rather like the phrase, the, the psychedelic age. In the sense, I don't mean everyone taking psychedelics and having a party. I mean learning the art of how do you control your level of consciousness and then how do you control that level so you can keep your concentration. Mm. I don't go in for leery, you know, turn on and then I drop out. Yeah. I say turn on and drop in. Yes. You know. Do be creative. Yeah, that was the problem with Leary, that his philosophy and what he was espousing to people was, it, it, people felt like it was dangerous to civilization, that people were going to ruin their lives, they were going to drop out, and they were going to become part of these hippie communes. And Yes. It was all bad publicity, mm -hmm. badly played. Um, yeah. And in those early years, in the whatever, mid-60s, when I started taking psychedelics seriously, we took it for working. I mean, the Stones would be playing a mile, half a mile away from our flat where I lived and still live in London. We didn't bother to go to them because we were having such fun doing our work, which is studying the brain on acid. Mm. Do you know who, who goes? Why bother? <laughs> you know. and, yeah. Um, so. I think that the use, I'm sure you and millions of other people know, how incredibly inspiring for work the use of psychedelics can be. Yes. 
you can see things you n- never saw before, you see, because suddenly having more of the brain simultaneously active as our images showed, the two circuits, you can see this is the ordinary brain, this is the brain on uh, psychedelics. I've got those beautiful things came from our study. Um, the circuits, do you know the ones? I've, I've got a picture of it in my back. Um, you can see the difference in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be used for whatever you're doing, for whatever yeah. creative, thoughtful process. You've suddenly got all that extra brain power yes. to dedicate towards what you feel passionate about. It's a superpower for stand-up comedy. Yeah. For stand-up it's, comedy, yes. so many of my comedian friends yes. use it to write. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I, I have an intimate relationship with Jamaica and the deep, deep divers. Mm. There's someone on the beach who said the one who wins that prize is his best friend. And he can stay down there much longer than the best friend can because he smokes very heavily before he goes down. Mm. Cannabis. Yeah. And he said that enables him to stop breathing for a much longer period. Mm. You know, so I think whatever you do, you can got you've got more passion or energy. So that, here's, that's that's here's the imagery. So that's the adult brain there on the left. On the left. Um, you and know, what what are these lines representing? It's connectivity between different centers in the brain. So wow. this is when you're on a psychedelic. It doesn't matter if it's psilocybin or LSD. Um, when you're on, you suddenly got this much more intimate connection between the different parts of the mm-hmm. brain. And so I think it needs training to learn to control that increased... It's like riding an incredibly powerful horse. You have to learn how you, how you, yes. do, how you control it. Yes. The brain is the same thing. If you just go and take that, you can have a wonderful look, experience looking at the stars or having a love affair or mm-hmm. listening to music. All of those things can be wonderful. But if you want to use it for cognitive discipline, which actually uses a lot of glucose because it's very late in, in development, so it's not part of the autonomic nervous system. It's a part of the cognitive nervous system mm-hmm. which burns glucose to get the energy to concentrate. And so that's the importance of taking the vitamin C and keeping the sugar level normal. Can I ask you a question about that? Um, yeah. What about ketones? What about yeah. the, like, I, I know many people, uh, they get on a, a ketogenic diet and yeah. their brain produces ketones and they feel yeah. like intellectually that's a superior fuel. I think probably it is a very good fuel, yeah. I think there's a lot more we'll constantly be be learning about how you can energize the brain in better, healthier ways. Yeah. But I think a secret, a basic secret, which I felt feel I was given the key to in 1966 when I ha- learned about how one can increase the blood supply to the brain and therefore give it all that extra energy to do have all the brain functioning. Mm-hmm. And then it's a whole new art. How do you, how do you use that 
Yes. Productively. But I mean, that's like being a magician. Magician, brilliant magicians aren't. They have to practice. Mm-hmm. So it's a skill. Yes. I I always say to be to to take psychedelics, you have to be much more disciplined than not to take them. Mm. It's much easier not to take them. Yes. In a sense. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I think people have a misconception about what you're doing when you're taking psychedelics. Mm. Or when you're taking, uh, including cannabis. As yes. I think the common misconception is that you are avoiding reality. Yeah. And yep. that you are somehow or another giving yourself a crutch. Yeah. I don't think it's that at all. No. And I think that uh, with discipline, the use of psychedelics through dis- with discipline, yep. uh, it, it, it allows you to experience these states and get yep. something from them and pull something from them yep. and apply it. Yeah, to I totally agree normal consciousness. I totally agree. It gives you an extra power, like riding a more powerful horse. Yes. You've got in your brain power, there's more there. Yes. And so, I mean, I find if I'm in a really beautiful place, if I'm in Egypt or, or all those wonderful places with incredible beauty, yeah, it's almost an insult to the place not to be at your optimum. <laughs> <laughs> I say that all the time. Yeah. I say that because when I go to art galleries, yeah. I, I never go to an art gallery sober. Yeah. No, I quite agree. Yeah, I, I, I always I, get I know. No, no yeah. point. You don't, I also yeah. feel that, that, I mean, it's just, people don't like this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I like to be high around my children. Yeah. Because when I'm around my children, I'm fascinated by them. Yeah, absolutely. And things that maybe would be frustrating, perhaps, if yes. I was sober, yes. instead are charming. Yeah. And I, f- I find them interesting, and I'm, I'm fascinated by their mindset and yeah. talking to them. And I, Yeah. And you have much more in common with them. Yeah. Because you're on the same wavelength. So I, you stay in yes. contact with them. I adored having my children. And... They were the greatest pleasure. And I remember being at one of those conferences in Palenque or something, psychedelic conferences. Mm. And I think it was Terence McKenna's wife actually was giving a lecture or giving a talk very nicely. And how when she was pregnant, she gave up everything. And I couldn't, I hate public speaking. I remember <laughs> putting up my finger because I wanted to say, well, actually, when I was pregnant, I didn't because... I actually think it's good for my health. Mm, you know, I've yes. taken enough of it that I really think it's actually It's not good. like alcohol or cigarettes, no, no. No. And my children, I'm proud of my children. Mm. And, you know, they are children of parents who understood the benefits of altered states of yes. consciousness. Yeah, I've, I've had those conversations with my children, uh, my youngest, who are um, 13 and 15, and they're at that age where, you know, children want to experiment with alcohol, they want to experiment with drugs, and mm-hmm. I have conversations with them about yeah. ones that you should avoid yeah. and the dangers of things yeah. that may be contaminated with fentanyl. And, yeah, absolutely. And that these organic compounds, yeah. as long as you know the source that you're getting them from, whether absolutely. they're psilocybin or yeah. or particular marijuana, yeah. Yeah. These, these are, they're not what everybody is telling you they are. Yeah. And that's what's criminal, and I do think criminal, about the government, because the, the, all the governments, the knowledge is out there. These are non-toxic, the, the ones which are non-toxic. Yes. And like in England, people on the mass can only 
by the, the illegal market in cannabis is taken over by certain breeders who breed only rubbish stuff. An insensible person would never dream of smoking mm. very high THC cannabis, yeah. which is shit. And it's not good for young people to smoke that. Right. And it's, it's um, the authorities which are forcing the young people into that if they choose to smoke. And I did a, a paper for I, I uh, designed for the 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 government saying that if they, as I hope they do, regulate cannabis, they should make very low tax for THC CBD balance. Mm -hmm. And as it gets more and more strong, tax it more because that mm. will incline people to stop smoking. Is extremely high THC. You, you think there's dangers in smoking yeah, a very I high THC? I, I mean, not for grown-ups who know how to handle it and things. Right. But I, I, I think it can be dangerous. I believe so too, yeah. and I think there's uh, there's also some correlations between that and schizophrenic breaks. Mm -hmm. That people who perhaps have a tendency towards schizophrenia yeah. when they have high doses yeah, of I THC, so. they've yeah. had very traumatic experiences. Yeah. I think yeah. it should be encouraged a nice balance of THC, CBD. Yeah. Well, it's one of the good um, things about the legalization in California in particular mm -hmm. because they've relegated these um, edibles in particular to 10 milligrams, right. which is a very sensible dose. Right. It's just right. comfortable, yeah. not too bad. Yeah. You know, and that especially yeah. in conjunction with all the cannabinoids with CBD yeah. and it's – yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. And, and that's such a wonderful step forward. And it's wonderful it's happening in America, but also quite ironic that America is still forbidding the rest of the world yeah, it's crazy. to do the same thing. Yeah, it's, and uh, it really does need to change because it's holding up humanity in well, a sense. Well, I'm hoping that with education, the younger people are realizing what, what it actually is. And as these people go into public service, yes. they will go into public service with this new understanding of yes, it. Yes, absolutely. And I think I, I absolutely commend you on the wonderful information you give to people by having such a wide reach and letting people who you think are right say what they think and slowly, slowly it will seep through yes. and come to the top and be the dominant. Well, there's a but, propaganda narrative that's just very unfortunate that has permeated our society, yes, and yes. it's incorrect. Yeah, exactly. That a narrative of the um, brain, um, LSD, and something, uh, cooking the brain in yeah. the frying pan. Yeah, this is your brain. I remember yeah. once... Um, having lunch with Peter Thiel, and he was saying he was grown up with that and yes. couldn't get over it. Right. Do you know, I mean, right. what rubbish. Rubbish. A thing which is complete, there isn't another compound, I think, which is so powerful, which is less toxic. Well, what, it's fascinating to me that that all took place during the 80s, and the 80s, culturally, it's some of the worst artwork and music that the American <laughs> society's ever produced right. during the influence of the Just Say No era. Yes. And the 60s were a period of cultural growth yes. and change. And people always put down the 60s. But actually, all the things we love, not all the things, but a lot of the things we love came out of the 60s. Mm -hmm. Spirituality, Eastern spirituality, yoga, yes. health, music, music, comedy, yeah, yeah. 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 
even it, the it, it, automobile design. Yeah. And it was all on LSD. Yes. It was fueled, that change. In, and so I promised Albert Hoffman, I said, I'll, I can't remember what the words are, but I'll reinstate your favorite child. Mm. You know, yeah. LSD is a wonderful creation because it's non-toxic. It's so controllable. You know, um, if the governments were doing what a government should do, which is basically looking after their citizens like a good mother or father looks after their children, yeah, and therefore teaching them what they need to know, like our children. I'm never frightened my children might become addicted because they know they're from an earlier stage. They know. Yes, they're just, they've been don't, educated. Don't, don't, yeah. you know. Yeah. Silly. Right. And also they benefit from you discussing like your yeah. addiction to cigarettes and how you got over it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And and they saw how one when one did when it was legal use these compounds, one was productive with it. Yes. And it increased one's passion. I mean I'm a workaholic. So it, As am I. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm a user. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it makes one want to Achieve the work one can do. Yes, yes. I'm fascinated with American automobile design. Um, yeah. I'm a, I, I collect uh, old cars. Yeah. And there's a time period between 1965 yeah. and 1970 where there's some of the most amazing cars I really, ever. And it yeah. directly correlates. I understand. It drops off a cliff. Yeah. After 1970, how interesting! It's yes. fascinating yes. because the, those ch those cars from 1965 to 1970 to this day isn't are the most cherished collectors' uh, automobiles and the most beautiful designs. Yes, that's very interesting. Funny enough, in this talk I'm giving in a few days' time at Denver, I'm saying you can see um, the markings of civilization. You can see which civilizations had integrated altered states of consciousness mm. and which hadn't by their creativity production. Rather like in a tree, you can see by the rings yes. which are the years of drought and which are the years yes. of rain and sunshine. Right. And that's exactly it, what yeah. you're saying in that, in the, the peak of beauty in I cars. To, I want to show you something just so you can see this. I want, Jamie, pull up a 1969 Mustang and then I want you. I want to see a 1980 Mustang. The yeah. difference is so stark. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's so clear that yeah. that time period directly correlates with the sweeping yeah. psychedelics acts of 1970, yes, where yeah. they stopped yeah. people using these things. They made them forbidden and dangerous. And uh, that is a 1969 Mustang. It's one of the most beautiful yeah. things that anybody's uh, ever designed. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I look at that yeah. thing and I'm like, my uh, God, it's what perfect. What an artwork. Yeah. Artwork. Now, yeah. now show me a 1980. Now, this is just disgusting. Look at that clunky what? piece of shit. Ah, what right. is that? Yes. What ah, the yes. hell is that? Yeah. Imagine yeah. Yeah. that yeah. you went from that yeah. Yeah. to that. Absolutely. What Ab the yeah. hell happened yeah. to yeah. us? Something's wrong. Something's yeah. very, very wrong. Yeah. And people yeah. attribute it to... So yeah. oh, I mean, God, it's so gorgeous. Yes. Yes. And yes. people attribute it to so many different things. And yeah. one of the things they attribute yeah. it to is like gas yeah. being you know, more efficient, yeah. gas vehicle. But not true, because no. you could still make it beautiful. Yeah. And that is yeah. not beautiful. That's an ugly... Yeah. Piece of shit. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And I think that's such a beautiful... And you, I think you can tell it in culture. I mean, like, 
whatever in um, well the, the beautiful cultures. Sure, you can see they were high. They, yes, they had that. Fi- those lines in Chauvet yes. couldn't have been done by people who weren't high. You know, mm. it's too um, intuitive. It's, like, yes. it's, it's an intuitive expression. Mm. Yeah. I think one of the things that psychedelics do is increase the intuitive part of the brain. And now I'm, I've got a new program at the moment I'm doing, which is looking at LSD both in high doses and micro doses in the best and latest technology in the world can give. So in the high doses, I'm wanting to do a research on the mystical experience and anonymous experiences. And it will be the first research to use um, a Tesla 7. Do you know what I mean by um, MRI? Yes. It's usually a Tesla 3. All the research I've done is with a Tesla 3. Is this fMRI, functional MRI? Yeah. And then one um, does whatever, how many people, let's say 20, and one averages the results between the 20. What I'm going to do in this other one is use a 7 Tesla and personalize the data. So it will only be person by person looking at the data. And then it will be seven Tesla and a Meg. A Meg is the one which does that electrical. You can see which centers of the brain are communicating with each other. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have a very deep psychological one. So you'll know when the person has some expression of the mystical experience or some other experience. Mm. And you can see what's happening in the brain waves and the blood and markers. So yeah. one will have it much more carefully analyzed than ever before. Mm. Because apart from just pure fascination, interest, it's valuable to know how do we encourage people who are having a psychedelic um, assisted um, experience to overcome treatment resistant depression or whatever to have that mystical experience. So the more we can learn about how, 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 how does that grow? How does, mm. one, how does one help the fruition of that experience, mm-hmm. the better? Yeah. And then, so, well, that's at the top level, looking at those experiences. I mean, it's going to be so exciting, which parts of the brain to look at. And the whole different areas, the hemispheres, the blood supply, the... Um, which parts of the brain are actively activating in the highest way mm. in that experience. I once did an experience with a very high-level Indian meditator lady, and she really wanted to help me. And it was in a meg, one of those ones, Hedra. And she told me after she had, she came out beaming. She'd had a most wonderful med- mystical experience while she was in the machine. She said, the best experience I've had with God for long time. Mm. And it showed a great burst of gamma in the right cerebellum, which is very fascinating because the right, everyone thinks the cerebellum is just nothing basic um, balance and all those sort of things. But actually, I think it's a very highly, much more fascinating than that. And so a mystical experience is rather like a toad in the sun, sitting on the star, in the sun, in a state of blissful happiness. Mm. You know, it'd be very fascinating 
to actually know about more these different experiences that we can, as humans, experience. Yes. And how hopefully we can... Map them. Yeah, and therefore learn how to get them more. One of the things I was fascinated about with you is your uh, discussions of your experiences on LSD playing Go. Yes, that's very interesting. Which is really interesting because yeah. you, you said it made you a better player. Yeah. And Go is an incredibly complex yeah. game. Yeah. yeah, and that's why, well, for the last 50 years, I wanted to, and I will do a research on Go, but it's very difficult to find Go players who are used to functioning on a high-level LSD. Mm. Do you see what? Because people don't on the whole. Right. So, but I'm, I've got that in place. Because Go, as you know, is, is a pattern recognition. It's an intuitive game of pattern recognition. I've never played it. It's a wonderful game. Once you get into it, hi, you really get addicted to it because it's behind everything. You can play life on the Go board. Mm. And you have a handicap, so you know exactly where you are with the person you play against. A numerical handicap? Yeah. Um, the, the better player plays with white stone. So the worst player has black, which is slightly psych- it's more obvious, so it's a better visual, but it's slightly less good psychologically. And um, then they have handicaps. Every three games you win they get one stone put down on the board first, advance. Hmm. So anyway, we, we played passionately in the early 60s when LSD was legal. And um, at the end of day, you know, we, we were doing brain studies all day or whatever we were doing. And then Go was the... And we wrote down every game we played so we knew who won and what the score was. And anyway, I was a slightly better player than my opponent, but if I was an LSD and he wasn't, his handicap went up from three to six. Hmm. You know, so that's a lot of that's winning nine games. That's a big, right? Um, big change. And then it would come down again as he saw the patterns because it's a pattern recognition game, right? Um, and it, it's a wonderful game, but I gave it up because you have to be passionate about it to keep playing. Right. It's very taxing, right? Yeah, very taxing. Um, there's a similar result with psilocybin and the game of pool, pocket billiards. Right. You you have more feel and you you know where the ball is going more. Right. It's a, it, right. And you can understand angles and right. patterns. Yeah, absolutely. Better. Absolutely. And I think sportsmen, I mean, like Joe, the father of my children, he loved cricket. And he said he was a better bowler. Have you heard of the the uh, the pitcher who pitched a game on acid, a no-hitter no game on acid? No. Yeah. Who, who was that again, Jamie? It's a very famous story of a guy who uh, he made a mistake yeah. and got just too high. He yeah. was, and it didn't wear off, and he went to the game. Here it is, Doc uh, Ellis. Yeah. He took acid and pitched a no-hitter. Yeah. So, like, don't no <laughs> get his ball yeah. when he was yeah. on acid, yeah. which is, sounds well, that, so that, crazy. That's exactly it. I yeah. mean, and do you know that picture of the spider, which came out in the 60s? Um, the spider's web. Yes. I'm, I'm, yes. I'm trying to recreate that study. And, 
Let's see if you find that spider. They, they yeah. gave the spider LSD. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, the caffeine one was absolutely chaotic. It right. was so bad. Look at it. Uh, the cannabis one started off rather well, then you're chaotic, just like cannabis does happen. But look at the LSD one. And the LSD one. one was perfect, better than perfect. Well, look at the normal one, though. The normal one's pretty amazing, too. Yeah. But funny enough, now I know the leading web person in the world is a, is a Don at Oxford, who I've been talking about six years now, to do this research. But you wouldn't believe it. To give a spider LSD, one has to get ethical approval. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I mean... That's you know, funny. And for eight, six, eight years, we haven't yet got the ethical approval. There's nothing ethical about being a spider. Yeah, I know. You can't believe it. <laughs> Their whole existing, yeah. it's, it's existence yeah. is unethical. Yeah. They're, they're trapping other insects. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, so, so far we haven't done it, but I really want to do it this year. Hmm. Because, I mean, maybe they were pulling our legs. But it's a, it's a very interesting concept. Sure. That even at the spider level... It improves function. Yes. Um, it would make sense that caffeine would be all over the place, too. Yeah. The heart rate would be jacked up yeah. be, or whatever, their central nervous system. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's very, there's so much we could do. And that's why I, I actually feel having lived with these substances as my passion, my passion for 50 or 60 years, and particularly LSB, because I think it's the cleanest and I know it the best. I, I've got a very good instinct how to do it. I've, I've designed several studies I haven't talked about because I don't, they shouldn't come out. But I can see how it can help, like the old woman with Alzheimer's. Mm. Which I'd like to just show you, not to go on the sure. thing, but to show you. Yes. Because the difference is so big when I showed it to the professor of geriatrics in Switzerland. Within an hour, he said he wanted to do collaboration with me to do an Alzheimer's study mm. with it because you can't fake someone's expression. So from deep apathy, it goes to a sparkling little old lady. And there's nothing conventional that that would replace that. There's no, no conventional no, medication that no has medication. the same sort of application. And actually, I'm working with um, well, a very nice man who's the CEO of the biggest care home in England which is a national health one, and he'd heard about my research and was very interested. He says 70% of his residents have Alzheimer's, and there's nothing you can do. Mm. And the suffering it causes them and their relations and their carers is devastating, and it's getting worse and worse as we live longer and longer. And, and it's stunning so, that there's something available. Yeah, yeah. And... Well, after I'll show you, because it is okay. miraculous. And so I've also got a very, very good concept for the perfect place, because what I would like to do is, with these conditions, like I'd like to do Alzheimer's, I also want to do autism, also Parkinson's. You know, I want to be able to fast-forward these researches with the best doctors available, scientists, you know, I can design them. I know them. I know, the, I know how they go. Mm. And what I can see is it's very similar to a condition which we know historically, which is called um, terminal lucidity. And I've been studying that for the last year or two. It's a well-known fact 
the people quite often just before death who are in coma or paralyzed or one of those conditions out of the picture for years suddenly will come back and just before they die and make jokes about when they were in the nursery and people you know who know them know they're that yeah. sharp and I think what can happen with a microdose is that you light up the connectivity between these different brain centers so suddenly the brain is functioning again I mean not probably functioning like um, this old lady she came back her children said it was remarkable it was getting our mother back mm. she had her wit wow. her, her love her attention she said I feel so wonderful let's read some poetry do you know wow from having been this vegetative state yeah and I think we can now get that going and what I want is the freedom to design to make the um, care home the Beckley Harbour, where people can go and be treated with these compounds mm. to see if it suits them, and see if it has the same effect as it had with this old lady. And then we collect the data, and then I would have wonderful trained doulas who entertain them and make it a wonderful place to be. We'd have dogs and children, and it would be oh, like that home. incredible. You know, it would yeah. be like being at home with lovely people who look after your emotional humor, da-da-da-da, and you're given a microdose personally fitted to suit you. And what a superior experience that would be to the traditional nursing home. Yeah, and then we'd find out, does it suit? And then one could collect in a year in a not a very big nursing home, and this wonderful man in England said, so long as it's legal, he'll give me the nursing home to try it. Wow. So I want the permissions to be able to do this. Yeah. And then one could get a lot of people coming through, and then one would give them home care. So one would have someone visiting them at home as much as they need to maintain a safe and good program. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that we could do that. Yeah. You know, this year. Oh, that year. sounds incredible. So, uh, but it needs, one, the regulatory passport to do it, and two, the funding. And both are there. I mean, there's so much money around it. You know, and everyone's getting old. Either their parents are or they are. And, you know, we should do these things speedily. Yes. Not, not wait 10 right. years until, you know, it takes two years even to get the paperwork done right. for this research. Or one year. You know. I wanted to talk to you about near-death experiences. And there's... Uh, a lot of uh, speculation about what happens in the brain during near-death experiences because many people report things that are very similar to what what is a, like a breakthrough psychedelic experience. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I think is near death, the body kind of is in a state of extreme turn-on and it naturally endogenously lets out these compounds, um, oxytocin, um, you know, all the different compounds in the body, which DMT maybe, um, maybe there's, you know, they're probably more than we've even discovered, hmm. which give a shot of something, serotonin, um, which is very similar to a psychedelic. 
And that's why people can suddenly come out of a vegetative state shortly before death. And that's what I'm saying. I think that what I'm doing with microdosing is creating that effect without having to wait for the person to die, poor person. Yes. Right? One can do it on a protocol. Um, and that's what I'd like to research now. Oh, well, that'd be amazing. You know, it's obvious. Yeah. I've got some, I've got proof of the thing that it happens. You can't fake it. You can't fake someone coming back to life again in the look in the eyes. So it's there. And just let's get the space so legally. We can, I could set it up with the best people, like, you know. Yeah. I can set it up and we could do it. And then if we get successful data, we can set uh, open clinics, care homes, which services. And then hopefully the people can take the treatment home with them. Hmm. One of the more bizarre things that comes out of psychedelic experience is contact with entities, mm -hmm. contact with what seems to be some other form of consciousness. Mm -hmm. What do you think is going on with that? That, I, I love your entity flashing across the ceiling. Oh, that's um, a shooting star. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. have to tell people about that, especially people that have had psychedelic experiences. They think they're having a flashback. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't warn yeah. you. <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, what do I think? Certain compounds create it more than others. DMT, yes. much more. LSD doesn't really produce entities, Right. strangely. It's, it's, I think it's, uh, um, yeah. Anyway. But psilocybin does. Uh, yeah, but that's got DMT in it. Right. Which, LSD. That's why I love LSD. LSD, I think, is more like a flower opening up, i.e., it's more of yourself. Mm. Right. Whereas DMT, whether it's ayahuasca or psilocybin to a lesser degree, has this. Slightly boom, 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 slightly yes. dominating sound, slightly, uh, I don't really like the colours as much. You I don't? Mean, not quite. Those kind of mauves and browns, and uh, I prefer the LSD colours. You see, you, you see mauves and browns when you do DMT? Well, I'm not a DNT person. I, I mean, I've done it, yeah, but I don't. Because I've seen think. very bright, vivid colors. I've, yes. I've not seen mauve. Have you seen the darker colors? I find it slightly Sometimes. dark. Really? I Interesting. Mean, I was once in quite recently in a room of a um, session when people were doing it. There were only ten people in the room. Three of them were in. A, um, a battleground, a poor boy had had, had much too much and was screaming and yelling and getting burnt. Mm. And the person who looked after him was a very practiced person in these things. He then said to me, well, actually, I was in a massacre myself. <laughs> you know? A massacre? And so, yeah, I mean, you know, he was, really? um, while well, he looked after the person, but he's very well contained with his massacre, so he still mm -hmm. managed to look after the other. But I actually thought, I don't really, so choose compounds which bring the tendency of those sort of experiences. But I know people have wonderful experiences. And, yeah. And, I, I've and never had those negative experiences like you? that. No. no, my experience right. has been very vivid and, and bright. Right. right. And, yeah. and enlightening. Right. 
Yeah, and the right. the entities are very colorful. Right. Bright colors and wild, beautiful, loving experiences. Right. How lovely. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. that's that's very lucky because I know people who've had horrible ones too. But I mean, obviously, they come come you, and they go. Do you think that that's people struggling with the experience and trying to control yes. it? I'm sure trying to control it is uh, is. Um, not a good detrimental. Yeah. Um, and I think people are very lucky who've never had a really bad experience. I had a really bad experience with someone right back in the first year of my taking LSD, someone who had actually turned leery on to LSD, who was a kind of freak, not a nice person <laughs> at all. <laughs> anyway. I, I, he, he had a vinegar bottle of Sandoz vitamin C. I wow. mean, not, not uh, LSD. And he offered me some. I said, no, thanks. I didn't want it. Anyway, I didn't want him around. And then he poured it into my coffee. Oh, God. Without telling me. Oh, God. And uh, thousands of trips. Oh, God. Know? And so I had a, a dying experience. And, oh. uh, it was a really bad experience and you know once you cut a, a, a thing in the soul or the body you retain that fear a pathway yeah that pathway yeah. so um i think people who've had really bad experiences and have got pathways cut mm. are more likely if they're given a psychedelic are fearful of getting down that route Right. Do you think Again. that's a, a memory retention? Like perhaps I, they, they remember the bad trip and then they start manifesting it? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think they definitely remember. The question is whether they can remember it um, in, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I've forgotten the word. Epidogenics, mm. which says maybe you can go on for generations of memory of mm. trauma, but I don't know if that's yeah. or not. But I quite agree with you. I mean, if you're someone who's never had a really bad experience, you're much less likely to have it, and that's a great gift, and that's yeah. what we want everyone to be like. Most certainly. Well, yeah. What do you think you're encountering, like especially on DMT? What do you think the entities are? Do you think that's a figment of the imagination? Do you think it's a, the consciousness expressing itself in different ways through the visual cortex? Yeah. Like what? Yeah. Um, what do you think is actually an entity? I, I, I know shaman of uh, ayahuasca here, and he says he always considered in the Sente Daimi Church, they consider entities a deflection of attention. It's better not to go into the world of entities. Really? But a lot of people love the entities. Yeah. And so I don't know. Um, my son once had an entity experience with ayahuasca, and... Um, the entity told him, "Why, why do you have so many? Uh, such a collection of um, sneakers." He's <laughs> <laughs> a sneakerhead. <laughs> yes, which that's he does. Funny. He got a passion for sneakers. Oh, that's funny. So I, d I don't know. I d I'm not an expert on entities. Yeah, I, I, I always wondered if maybe that's your own consciousness recognizing that you're obsessing about a thing. Yeah, I, th I think there's that. I, I think there's that element about it. 
I, I, I think, I mean, I think there's, I'm hoping this research I'm doing on the mystical experience. I think anomalous experiences like telepathy, telepathy I know happens to my own satisfaction. I'm in no doubt. How so? Because with my pigeon lover, we were lovers for 15 years, passionate lovers. Didn't Tesla, wasn't Tesla in love with the pigeon yes, as well? Yes, I think he was. Yeah. 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 Why, why pigeons? Well, it just so happened that his mother died on the, on the window ledge. Mm. And Joe went to collect her body. We were trying to feed her. And there was a little day-old fledgling without any oh, feather. so you raised it. And he, um, he shouldn't have lived because he didn't at that age. But I fed him uh, warm milk and Weetabix on a paintbrush. Ah. And he became, I mean, he, he was, he became just obsessive. And he became the boss. And Joe said to me, let's get rid of this pigeon, this creature. We're going to have him, I, I insist, let's put him out because we're going to have him forever. And he's going to ruin our lives. So I put him and I thought, no, I'm not going to put him out, my beloved <laughs> papa. And I went and brought him in again. And sure enough, we had him forever. <laughs> How long did he live? And he, was, he lived uh, for 15 years. Wow. But he was then killed. I always knew he'd be killed somehow. And the interesting thing, I won't tell the story because it's too long, but I knew before he died, and I said out loud to him as he flew by, I said, Buddy, I love you more than anything else in the world. And that was the last thing I said to him. Mm. And then he died, and I knew he'd dead. I was painting a picture, I was on acid painting a picture, and I suddenly had this thing, Buddy's dead, Buddy's dead. And so I did what I had never done. I stopped painting and went down to look for him. Anyway, it turned out um, my father, who was also very kind of in on those sort of things, but he was very fond of, had lost his temper with the old cowman we had for 50 years and told him to go and cut these effing uh, nettles somewhere. And in the nettles was Birdie's still warm body. Oh. So I knew before it happened, and he knew within 10 minutes of it happening. I mean, how many dead birds do you get? See, hardly ever. I mean, birds dying all the time. They right. get eaten. You never trace them. Right. Um, Birdie. And then once we took Birdie camping years before that, Anyway, it's another story, but he flew off. And then I did a national, I got on English um, BBC news. <laughs> I said he was a hero, Antonioni's new film. And because uh, I'd put adverts in the Times and everywhere look, looking for beloved grey London pigeon, <laughs> I got thousands of people saying they had him, and we went all over England collecting these wretched. Pigeons, which were meant to be birdie, <laughs> and then I, uh, so then I went up to, to the television, and did this petition for birdie on the television, on the news, because I said he was the star of Antonioni's new film. I asked Antonioni if I could do that, and he said yes, and so the BBC was jammed with telephones seeing 
people finding somebody. And then I was really upset because they said they never introduce whatever people who ring in to people looking for fear of something. Anyway, so I was incredibly sad because I thought, what the point for the whole thing? The whole point was to get Bertie back. And then there was one telephone call which came through, which came from the police station. And because Bertie had landed on a washing line of a man who didn't have a telephone, so he didn't do his own telephoning, he sent his son to the police station saying he had Bertie. And because it was the police's line, it got through to me. And that was Buddy. So, oh. Do you see what I mean? Multiple yeah. things of telepathy. And other things. I mean, I'm in no doubt that telepathy exists. Are you or not? I, yeah. I think it probably does in some way. I think it's yeah. an emergent property of human yes. consciousness that's not yeah. quite fully formed. I think it's there, but we, uh, because of our egos and uh, we we don't sense it. Yeah. I mean, because... Like animals know when there's going to be a Swiss army. No animals die in the Swiss army. They all go up the mountain. Right. Well, humans don't have that sense. Do you know? Yes. Because we've got too much noise in the brain. Mm. So I think we've got the sense, but we don't use it. Right. Or don't know how to use it. Right. So I think it's there. And... I, I, I love those sort of things. I'd love to know. I think they work with the same centers in the brain as, say, a mystical experience. Mm. So by learning more about the mystical experience, one can hook on to learn more about anomalous experiences. Mm. You know, like I know a, um, a Buddhist monk who can shoot electricity kind of thing. I mean, strange things which are unexplicable at the moment, but it'd be very interesting to find out. So you think that these are probably the abilities that we have, but they're stifled by ego. They're yeah. stifled by yeah. noise. They're yeah. stifled by anxiety. They're yeah. stifled yeah. by... Yeah, I think they're, they're probably skills that you have to design. I mean, it is a funny thing that animals aren't ever killed by his army. Right. They just have the instinct to go up, up out mm -hmm. of the way before yeah. it happens. That they have some Something, understanding. some sense. Yeah. Of, I think things like telepathy happen with two things, passion, love, love, passion, i.e. connection, and threat. I think they put the the um, tendency, the, the, uh, the sense of more likely to sense it if it's like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why I had passion for Birdie, and it was when he was in danger, on several occasions I found him when his wings were trapped. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Right, like you sensed it. Yeah. You had this connection with them. Yeah. And yeah. I've had it with humans too, but it's usually a threat. To life, a, a kind of adrenal threat, which yes. obviously sends a, a message. Yeah, if you're there, ready to receive it. One of the things uh, about ayahuasca was when they were first uh, recognizing it, they uh, they tried to call uh, one of the compounds of it telepathine. Yes, 
Yeah, but yes. then they realized that it had already been named. It was already Harmine. Right, yeah. right. We did the first, I did the first research with Harmine, with someone called Jordi Riba, who's a wonderful Spanish scientist, on Harmine and um, on um, neurogenesis. Mm. We showed that it increased neurogenesis. As does psilocybin, right? Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I yeah, mean, it's very... we're, we're going to find out so much. Mm. And he committed suicide, sadly, oh. which is a tragedy because he was a great scientist. But, yeah, there's so much to understand. And I think we're at such an incredibly interesting sphere of in- investigation. Yes. Because these things are all on the, on the cusp of where we are and where we can go to in the future. Yeah. And well, I think that's why it's so wonderful that someone like you is out here with so this passion you. for it, doing well, this research. And wonderful that you're spreading information about these things to people because it has to get out there that people are actually interested yes. and then force our politicians in a nice way. Yeah. But, you know, to change. To it. it's, yeah. it's, it really needs to be changed. It does. And because... I, I do think, I mean, I think the use of cannabis and psychedelics can enhance one's relationship with one's partner. One can help see the other viewpoint and yes. help kind of get over difficult periods. Yes. I think it can do that with warring countries. Yes. I think, you know, empathy, it increases empathy. It increases the possibility we know from research we've done, and other people have done too, that the amygdala is lowered, particularly with MDMA, the fear, so you can approach things which are fearful, like trauma, better. I mean, there's so many different pathways that these compounds can help enable humanity to get to their healthier, nobler, more creative expressions of themselves. I mean, the number of people I know, and I bet you know many more, who've said it changed their lives, their experience. Changed mine. Yeah, and mine, and mine. I mean, I don't think, I, I know I couldn't have done what I've done without what I got from these compounds giving me the extra energy and understanding and... And that's what I think should be there. I, I passionately think psychedelics are a gift of the gods, in inverted commas. It's, it's, a, it's a natural gift, which shouldn't be expensive. We must keep it so it's affordable yes. to the poorest and the rest of the world. And, cause and that shouldn't be difficult they to They cost do. nothing. Right. I started, I've twice started a legal... Um, Beckley Labs to make top-level um, compounds, which I'd. But both times something happened. I never had the money to have a, le- a legal, so I never had a legal agreement. So actually, the person always did the dirty on me when it just got going. So it never happened. But I wanted to happen because mm. the purpose was to keep it low price. You know. Yes. I mean, people have to make money getting a, 
a compound through phase three costs hundreds of millions. So as governments aren't paying, one very lucky to have people who invest money to do it. Yeah. But then one wants to try to make sure that the investment doesn't stop other people being able to have benefit right. from it. Right, they don't it. have monopoly over yeah. it. Yes, yeah. and so raise the prices. How, how we work out how you do the research, get it done, and the whole thing is maintained in an ethical sort of way. So it's not going to be a sport of the rich people only. Right. It's going to be democratized and And that's the benefit of the rich people as well. And the density. And the rich people are the ones who hopefully are those who take the risk of, as the governments don't do it, of putting their money in to make the studies happen. But really, governments should be encouraging. I mean, to give the British government, they did fund our depression study second time round to give them their tube. And I I know that NIDA is now funded. But, I mean, it's a pittance. One's needing a lot of money to allow... I mean, I do studies. I do them fantastically cheap. I think since I started the Berkeley 25 years ago, I think, Vivi, my, who's been with it 20 years, I think she said it's, I've had about, I, the Beckleys, had about five and a half million pounds in total. So, you For know. 25 years, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, and I've done a lot of the breakthrough research. Mm. But I'm now, the age I am, and you know, I can't go on forever working 15 hours a day. Right. And I would like to be able to do what I can do now, which is a lot, because I know the compounds so well. I know well their strengths, where to use them. You know, yeah. and it's such fun doing. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like playing go. <laughs> you know? Yeah, one loves playing go. Yeah. yeah, and it's a much more interesting game because then maybe one can help um, deal with Alzheimer's. Maybe one can help. There's all these conditions, yeah. which I think these compounds can help. Just elevate humanity in general. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. not only for treating people, but elevation. Yes. I think that's absolutely as important, and that's why it has to not have to be only be a medicine. It's a medicine, which is essential, but it's also an elixir to make the human animal, the upright talking ape, a bit less of an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. I think that's a great way to wrap this up. Thank you very much. I really, really appreciate you being here. And I really appreciate everything you've done. It means so much to just to to the whole world. Well, thank you very much for asking me. Um, If someone wants to learn more about your research, where should they go? Well, um, to the Beckley Foundation. But I have, we have, you know, we're a tiny organization. So we can never, I mean, I hardly ever look at the website. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Um, What I would, they can help. Because I can do a lot of wonderful research. I've got a very good, tiny team. But I want to do more research and make things happen. So Um, you want people to contribute. So there's a donate button. If you go to thebeckleyfoundation.org, in the upper right-hand corner, there's a donation button. You can support psychedelic research. You can donate from anywhere in the world. Uh, UK tax-deductible donations, U.S. tax-deductible donations. 
donate via bank transfer, cryptocurrency, Apple Pay. Huh. Amazing. Well, I've never seen it, but well there done. It is. It's <laughs> well really done. comprehensive. But, but it'd be lovely if it starts to work because yeah. it, it's particularly difficult now that it, business, because people think, why put money in a bottomless well when one could put it in a well which can sprout? Yes. But I think there's an advantage in um, philanthropy because one's not guided by profit at all. One's guided by the knowledge we yes. can get. And yes. So, and then that can become profitable. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. And thank you for asking me. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.